in 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. Just, as a, just so you know, um, in Jackson, Missouri, churches are small in southeast Missouri. They're struggling like everywhere else. Um, Kennett was there. Yeah, Fredertown doesn't have any young people. Farmington had some. Uh, Jackson had several. There were some from Illinois, some from some SEMO students that were there. Had some great singing, a wonderful time. Uh, but they, they just need to get together, and they were ready to. Their energy was high. And I just say to uh, parents, uh, our, our kids need every bit of spiritual encouragement they can get, every bit they can get. So support everything that Michael does to involve our young people. They need this, uh, and, um, and they appreciate it. They seem to be receiving it very well. Second Samuel chapter 24, for the next month or so, we're going to do something a little different on Sunday nights. We're going uh, to be in this text for three or four weeks, and you're going to think, how, how in the world can you do that? Uh, you'll see, it's possible. Um, I want to give you a glimpse of sermon preparation or Bible class preparation as you take a journey through this chapter with me. Um, what I would urge you to do is have a piece of paper and a pen with you as you read this tomorrow, as you read this in the week to come. And write down some things. I call it a sermon journal. That's what I'm calling this lesson tonight. And you have a, a piece of paper or if you're a computer person and you do like word processing that way, that's a good way. And have your Bible open on the other arm of your lazy boy and be ready to really study this chapter. I want to challenge you. Like if just pretend you were be the one to present the material of this chapter, whether in a Bible class or in a sermon of some kind. And I would really like to think that there are some people who aspire to this in this assembly right here. Maybe you've always said, no, I could never do that. I, we, we've got to start developing adult Bible class teachers, church. We've got to start doing this. We've got to start doing this better. Not just relying on the people who always do it. We've got to get people who can jump up here and present a lesson or do a devotional at even at a nursing home and it be textual and not just some devotional thought that I get off the news from watching the news and stuff. It, it needs to be something responsible and accurate and in-depth and significant. But how do we do that? It all begins with a text. That's how it has to be. It can't be biblical teaching or preaching unless the Bible shapes the message straight out of the text. Sermon prep, Bible class teaching prep begins with no Bible study helps, no sermons from other people, no devotional books. It begins with the scripture on this side and a piece of paper on this side for you to write your observations. That's how it goes. You read it in one version. You might read it in two or three different versions, and then it's time to write some questions. You start interrogating the text a little bit. You start saying, what in the world does this word mean? What does this particular phrase or concept mean in this passage? This is a weird one, and tonight we've got a weird one. This is an odd chapter. It's full of some in-depth stuff that will challenge your view of God, and it's very important that you take the time to grapple with it. So you sit with it for a while. You read it. You read it in different versions. You think about it. You might even pray while you're reading this and as, after you read it. And then you start writing down all these observations and you, and you try to come up with some thoughts. But you're not done yet. But that's it for Monday. That's your Monday challenge. We'll, we'll, we'll end with the Tuesday challenge in a little bit. So here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Final words that this author of the Samuel's books 
says about David. This is what he saves for last. You're gonna, he's, he's developed this story. We've listened to this story. And it's the final words he wants us to hear about David, which asks, begs the question, why in the world did you save this story for last? Chronologically, I am almost sure it doesn't belong here. Chronologically, it, begin, it, it, it belongs to early, early 2 Samuel, maybe even 1st just after David became king. One of the reasons is, does anybody remember the prophet who confronts David and plays such a major role in David's life? Anybody remember what the prophet's name is? Nathan, but not in this chapter. Not in this chapter. Nathan doesn't make an appearance. It's Gad. And I'm like, where's Nathan? Well, Gad appears in 1 Samuel in the very last couple of chapters of 1 Samuel. And then he appears here at the end of 2 Samuel. I'm thinking Gad was the first prophet for David, and Nathan became the prophet later for David, and this belongs earlier in his life. I don't know why they put it. This is not chronologically ordered, so don't get uptight about that. But you do ask the question, and this is the first one I would have, why is this the last thing you want me thinking about David? This is not one of his finer moments. We all think of Bathsheba, but this story isn't good either. David has a few bad moments, and he chooses to save the last one for right here. It's just kind of strange. But uh, keep, keep going, start in the text here. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now just pause right there. God's already mad. Before anything happens in this chapter, God's already mad at his people and in fact it's his anger that leads to everything else in this chapter I've always read the chapter as what happened in the chapter made God angry but according to the writer it's God's anger that produces everything in this chapter that makes everything weirder now chapter 21 back up to chapter 21 just a second if you've got your Bibles with you you may remember this David avenges the Gibeonites God's angry with Israel and they experience a three-year famine. And they don't know why, and it has nothing to do with David. And in fact, it has everything to do with what Saul did, and Saul's dead and gone. And now they're having to pay for something that Saul did while David's king. And you're like, why didn't you just come out and say it? We don't even remember this incident. I don't know why God doesn't say it. But he sends this famine, and David figures out from the famine, God's angry. And he figures out why, and he does all that killing to satisfy the wrath of the Gibeonites, right? God's anger prompted that. Well, chapter 24, we don't know why God's angry. It doesn't say. He's just angry in 2 Samuel 24. He's angry against Israel, not necessarily David, but against the whole nation. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. You know what it means to incite somebody? Anybody know what it means to incite somebody? Go, number Israel and Judah. Did God get angry because David counted them? Or is God already angry and he causes David to count them? That's what it sounds like. And y'all, that makes all the difference in the world on how you interpret all this. This is nothing short of something weird, 
okay? Now, I want you to look at some different versions, how they translate this. The Lord was angry. This is the common English version, the contemporary English version. The Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Did they, was God mad because they counted? No. He's mad and made them count. What is that? That's just weird. Next one. ESV. This is the version I use, right? right now. I just read it. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and so he incited David against them. He made David do something against Israel, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now, who's doing the saying? Can you guess? Can you tell from this verse? Who is speaking here? God is. God tells David to go count, and then when David goes count, God's mad for him counting. What is this? I want you to have a headache, because sermon preparation is a headache. Bible class teaching is a headache. Those of you who have done it know it's true. Those of you who haven't can easily criticize those who try, because you think it should be easy. This is crazy. Next one. Now again, this is NASB, New American Standard. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it, it, incited David against them, Israel, to say, go number Israel and Judah. God's mad. He tricks David into counting, and then he gets mad at David for counting. Do that to your kids sometime and tell me that's not exasperating your children to wrath. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. Next one, last one. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he caused David to harm them. Yeah. Harm them by taking a census. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. This is just strange. And there's not going to be an easy answer to this, and I'm not going to answer for you tonight because this is what I'm talking about. I'm throwing this out there, and I want you to wrestle with this for a couple of weeks, right? Because a lot of you think you know the answer to this by jumping over to a different version, a different story, account of this, but be careful before you do that because God is for some reason angry at Israel, and he kind of sets them up for the punishment. That's what it sounds like. And so in your sermon journal, you're writing along, you're going to write a big old question mark. What in the world is this? So what does David do then? Verse 2. We're going to finally get to verse 2. You see the studies already in just verse 1. You're in for a long haul, right? Verse 2. Go number Israel. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, this is his main general, right, who was with him. Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. Go number them so I'll know the number. Okay? Is there anything wrong with this? Anything wrong with not counting the people? Can you think a book in the Bible where God told them twice to count the people? It's called the book of Numbers, all right, numbers, right? So I want the number, and I'm going to make a whole book in my Bible called Numbers. How could it be wrong to number when God commanded them twice to number the people? Well, it doesn't seem like any big deal. I mean, God's done this before. But notice Joab's response to this, and this is a big check and balance thing. 
Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king are still able to see it. While you're living, I hope you get a huge growth. He says, But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Why is this of interest to you? Joab is trying to put the brakes on this. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. What might be wrong with this? First of all, when you do a census, you don't ask the Department of Defense to count the number. That's not who does this. You call Gary James as part of the census back in 2020. And, and he goes around and he talks to everybody in the county and takes numbers and stuff, right? That's what you do. You, you get those census workers. No, he, he gets the commanding person of the army. So what does that tell you? What's it tell you that he asked the commanding army general to do the count? What? Looking for soldiers. He's decided, I want to attack somebody. I'm, I'm feeling imperialistic. I want to go attack somebody. So, I'm gonna, so maybe that's part of the problem. He's trying to act like a, a regular human king from the nations around him. And then, of course, Joab tries to, to correct him, to stop him, and he runs right through the stop sign that God has Joab be, right? He's acting like the kings of the nations. Well, they go throughout the whole country, it says, and they number the people of Israel. And he, he, he tells the map of where they went from verse 5 down all the way to verse 8. And Joab gave them, after nine months, verse 8, nine months and 20 days, basically 10 months to count the people. Joab comes up with a number. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Over a million people. Okay, that's the number. As soon as David heard the number, David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. Why? It wasn't anything problematic to his heart nine months and 20 days ago. But now that the count's been done and they give him the number, suddenly he has a heart attack, right? A conscience attack really is what this is. He has this horrible thing where his heart strikes him. And David said to the Lord, God, he goes straight to God. There's no prophet intervention here. There's nobody telling him this is wrong anymore, but he knows it. Somehow internally, without any help, he knows this is wrong. I've sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I don't know why. Doesn't ever say. But David knows it. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to him and the prophet Gad. This is the first Samuel prophet. What he's doing here at the end of 2 Samuel is a little confusing. Gad's a very, he's very close to God. You know how close he is? One letter difference. David's seer, and he says, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. This is a pick-your-poison deal. This is one of the weirdest punishments of God in Scripture. Three things I offer you. You choose one of them, and I'm going to do it to you. This is going to be done to punish you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, 
three years of famine or three months of being on the run from your enemies who pursue you or three days of pestilence in your land. Now you think about it and tell me what you want. What would you pick? To me, it's an easy one. What would you pick? Now, three years of famine, that's a long time, y'all. Three years of the water not running anymore. And we know God can do this. He does it later with Elijah, and he's already done it before in chapter 21, if that was before this. He's already done this before. So they know what a famine can do, right? That's what even drove Israel down to Egypt in the first place. They know about famines. They don't want that, right? Three months of being on the run. Has David experienced this before? At least twice, maybe three times. I don't know where this belongs, but yes, he's done. Three days of pestilence. This is the shortest amount of time, right? 24, 48, 58, 68. 72 hours is the punishment. See, this is what I would do with my parents. You can have three months of grounding. I can take away three baseball games or just a good hard spanking. How many of you went to mom and dad and said, spank me right now? How many? That's me. Just get her over with. Let's just do it. And so God sent, and, 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 and David says, I just don't know what to choose. I don't know why he didn't know, but he didn't, he didn't know what to choose. I'm in great distress. I'm just going to let God decide. That's what he says. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. His mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. That looks like he eliminated the second option. He didn't want to go on run. Right? He didn't want to live out of a suitcase. He's done that, been there, doesn't want to do it again. So the Lord, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced the pestilence. Obviously, in Egypt, they saw the pestilence of the Lord. But what, what would that cost? How many lives would that touch? He doesn't know. He throws himself in the hands of God. I think verse 16 and verse 17 happen at the same time, and we're going to read 17 first. After we read the first line of verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. A lot of people died for David's mistake. I guess if that's really what he's punishing them for. Go to verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. David could actually see this plague angel coming we'll see in first chronicles he sees it holding up a flaming sword and he sees it coming into jerusalem and it's a terrifying sight to see this angel ready to do some uh, slicing and dicing and and david was moved in the heart and he said behold i have sinned i have done wickedly but these sheep what have they done please let your hand be against me and my father's house quit killing innocent people for my mistake that's what he says and verse 16 is what happens and when the angel stretched out his hand toward jerusalem to destroy it the lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, That's enough. Stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. The angel stops, but the plague is not over. And you see the end of the story. It began at verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. 
I want you to build a sacrifice on the very spot you were when you saw the angel. So David went up on Gad's word as the Lord commanded, and when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. I don't know what in the world he thought. Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground, and Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, I'm going to buy your threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. There's a pause. The angel has stopped, but he's still got to complete this command from Gad, and so he's doing this quickly. He's coming up to Arana and says, I want to buy it. Then Arana said, Let my lord the king take up and offer what seems good to him. Just make a sacrifice. You don't have to buy it. Here's oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king Arana, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord of that which costs me nothing. It is not a sacrifice if you have no skin in the game. It's not a sacrifice if it's not yours. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxygen for, oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and a peace offering. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Okay. Good confession, good personal responsibility, good conviction demonstrated by his obvious uh, repentance and all that. David is uh, revealing some of his character when he says, God, we trust you. We're going to put it in your hands. All right. That's the story. There's a lot of weird questions here. And there's a lot of things about why these details and why was this put at the end. And then we're going to throw a little more weirdness on it. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to tell you the difference between this account and the one recorded of the same thing in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. There are some different details that throw us. But I want you to see the first one for sure. So 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Have you heard anything weird yet? Who incited him to count Israel? It just said God in 2 Samuel 24. The Lord was angry with Israel, incited David to count the people, and the first word of 1 Chronicles 21, then Satan stood against Israel, incited David to number Israel. Who did the trouble? Who raised the trouble? Weird. Either God or Satan, and the biblical writer can't decide. You ever sit there and wonder, is it God or is it Satan here? The Bible says yes. Doesn't help you much. And no mention of God's anger at Israel that leads to inciting David. None of that in 2 Chronicles or 1 Chronicles. Second, uh, in, in the 1 Chronicles incident, as it's recorded, he, Joab pushes back a little harder. Then why should my Lord require this? It should be, why should it be cause of guilt for Israel? He pushes back harder. This is going to make us guilty in God's sight. We shouldn't do this. And yet, they go ahead and do it. Third, the numbers are different. When they make the count, the numbers are different. And two tribes are excused from the count altogether. And that's Benjamin and Levi. Fourth, the one who owned the threshing floor was not Arana. It was Ornan, the Jebusite. 
Fifth, the purchase price is different. 600 shekels of gold, which is about 700 bucks. 60 shekels of gold. And finally, as a result of this event, David chooses this very site to be the place where he builds the temple. This is where the temple will be built, right here where this site happens. All right. All those are details. That's what you get on Monday when you read this passage, getting ready to teach it or preach it on Sunday. That's the stuff you got to work with. You're going to have to teach it on Sunday. But right now it's just Monday, and you've just read that, and you're writing down all these weird things and all these questions you have because you want them answered before you go before a class of people who you know that Gary Buck is going to raise one of these questions, and you better be showing that you've done something with it. Okay, so here's some of the questions you have to grapple with. I'm just going to throw them out there. You know them. If God does not tempt anyone, as James says, what does it mean that he incites David? If God doesn't tempt, what's inciting? Weird. How can one say that God incited David and the other one say that Satan incited David both of them are scripture both of them are the inerrant word of God what are you going to do about that was Joab wrong for counting the people he knew it wasn't wise he knew it wouldn't be against should he not have done it even though it was an order if it was wrong should he have done it why is the nation forced to suffer so much for the sin of one guy counting these people the one person in all this discipline who wasn't even touched was the one who did the trouble. How do you explain that? Um, does it bother you that there are two accounts in Scripture of the same event and the details are not the same? That happens all the time with the Gospels, by the way, if we actually look at them very carefully. And what is so great about David, the man after God's own heart, it seems to me he flubs up a lot. What is so great about this guy? And why would this be your last story? Wouldn't you want to end on something really positive? And then I'm asking, what else did you see? You read a couple of versions of this, then maybe read the First Chronicles passage, jot down your observations, and consider how would I teach this passage? Would you, would you go line by line, if you were preaching it, would you go line by line like a commentary? Please don't. Please don't. And you're going to say, well, you just did. I know, but we're just kind of setting this up. This is the Monday, right? This isn't the... Would you choose a problem you see and go to other passages that give clarity for that problem? Would you, would you take on the how can God incite and how can Satan be said to incite? How can that be behind the same event? How can that be? It's a good question, and the Bible does address it. If you open up your mind, and you'd have to go to Job for sure, right? Anybody thinking of Job yet? Would you pose a question and answer it in other places of Scripture? Like, when you obey a command from a commanding officer or somebody who's an authority over you, but you know full well it's against God, do you have to get, do you, should you do it anyway? It's a great question, because I bet some of you have faced that before. If you do three points in a poem, what are the three points going to be? And what poem are you going to throw in there with it? And what would the application be to your hearers? 
Really, after all this is 2 Samuel, what do I care? What do we care in 2022 about any of this stuff? Because guys, I'm going to tell you something. The part we just did is the easiest part. Because you've got commentaries. And by the way, Tuesday, what you do is you open up the commentaries. And after you read that sermon journal, you put, that, you put all these notes in there and you read them over them on Monday. And then you close the Bible. You don't look at anything else. You just close the Bible and let your subconscious mind do this. And while you're out fishing or while you're cleaning your house or whatever, your subconscious mind is thinking about this. Trust me, it is. And when you come Tuesday and you open up that sermon journal again and you read those things, you'll have some more thoughts that you didn't even know you were thinking about that passage. And you'll jot those down and then you'll start opening up some aids like commentaries and stuff. But guys, this is all just the textual stuff. And I can tell you this, when you start to teach or you start to preach, you've got all this information on a page. You can't preach all of it. You can't teach all of it. It's a hodgepodge mess. And if you think you're ready to teach, and I've seen lots of people teach this way, you'll go into a class and go, and nobody will have any idea what to do with your. That's what will happen. You can't cover everything. And you got to figure out, how does this apply to your life? Because listen, guys, when you come on Sunday morning, you don't need a good, classic treatment of the setting of 2 Samuel 24. What you need to know is, when I go to work tomorrow, how does any of this matter at all to me? So as well as you know the Bible text... You better know the lives of the people sitting in front of you and be able to apply it. If you're not ready to apply it, you're not ready to preach it, you're not ready to teach it. Your classes are not just to fill your mind with what happened back there in the 1500s B.C. That's where the work comes, and that's where a lot of preachers run out of time, and they don't have time to apply it. And if you're not applying it, then it's not a sermon. It's a historical treatment of a passage. What must you treat when you get to this passage, and how does it enrich my understanding of life? After you do all that, you close it up. Tuesday, you come back, and you start opening up some commentaries or some online resources, and you start looking for some answers to the questions you've got. And then, you, and then anything you find interesting, you add that to your sermon journal, and then you close it, and you wait for Wednesday. And you trust and pray that God's going to use your subconscious mind to help you. And so we are, we are at Monday. Next Sunday, we're going to add Tuesday to it. And might just actually go into one possible sermon you could treat from this. But I'm wanting you to go with me on this trip. For those of you especially who have interest in ever teaching classes or ever presenting a lesson sometime, grapple with me with this. These are not easy things. There's no easy answer to this. But there needs to be something that we have to say that relates to our lives. This evening, if you have a spiritual need, something that needs the attention of this congregation, or maybe it needs the Lord's attention as you're ready to give your life to him in the waters of baptism, this evening we'd love to help you with that. Whatever is your need, make it known as we stand and as we sing.